Bank Islam, which is one of the biggest Islamic banks in Malaysia, reached out and said, we like what you're doing. We've been seeing what you're doing in the UK. We want to launch our own digital bank. We're trying to digitize. Can you help us to do that? Can you white label what you've created in the UK? Give it to us and we'll pay you a monthly fee for that. Um, and it will just help us get to get to market way faster. So suddenly this whole different revenue line for us was born of B2B, where we're not just the Muslim money app, we're helping whatever bank better appeal to Muslim customers. Welcome to another podcast of the I Love Monday podcast. Today we have Entrepreneur of the Year at the, at the what are you laughing for? We have Entrepreneur of the Year at the British Muslim Awards, which Arib Siddiqui finds funny. Arib, That's me. Yeah, yeah, Assalamualaikum. Thank you so much for having me. More importantly, Arib is the founder of Kestrel, the Muslim money app. What what is Kestrel? Just a yeah, sure. So, a brief before we do a deep dive. <laughs> yeah, Kestrel is a service that helps Muslims who want to grow their money without compromising, whether it's on their beliefs or on price or on user experience. So we have a consumer app in the UK that helps people to do that. And we also have a software for any bank or any financial service firm that wants to better appeal to their Muslim customers. You also have been nominated for the Islam Channel Awards. Yeah, we have, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think like Digital Business of the Year and uh, Financial Service Firm of the Year, but going up against some very good candidates like Wahid and Fida, Nesta, people like them. So IFG on there as well. IFG as well. So IFG as well. I'm not going to choose my favorite because we've had Ibrahim from IFG, <laughs> we've had Raza, and now we've got Arib. So well, sure they're all much better qualified than I am. So yeah. <laughs> so tell us about your journey from uni days. Yeah, sure. Um, so I went to university at UCL, University College London, for my undergrad. I did physics, which was like a compromise because I wanted to do zoology, but my parents were like, what, what the hell are you going to do with that? How are you going to make money? Um, and they really wanted to push me into financial services. They thought it, saw it as like a, a safe path. It was what my dad did. So we compromised with physics. So I ended up going and doing physics at university. Um, and Alhamdulillah, in my second year, uh, I realized quite quickly that it's really hard if you want to make money in sciences, in this country anyway. So I did apply for a bunch of internships, got into Deloitte, did their summer internship scheme, got the grad program, and I started at Deloitte, which is a big four accounting and consulting firm. So if you finished, oh, if you were an undergrad at yeah. zoology, what would you have what been would doing I have today? Done? Uh, <laughs> In like a dream world, I would love to have made um, documentaries, wildlife documentaries. Uh, you know, like Steve Backshaw or Golden Buchanan, people like that, going around the world, um, especially studying big cats. That was what I loved to do, especially wild tigers. So maybe when all this is over, that's we your, can go back to that. That's your yeah. retirement life. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> I've got a few plugs for you. I'll hook you up. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay, so then you were at Deloitte, obviously yeah. it's a different ball game studying physics at yeah. uni to do in Deloitte because that's yeah. a whole intense internship, I would presume. Yeah, it was. It was, it was good though. Um, I did really enjoy it uh, and it did make me feel like it was something maybe I could do because I saw a lot of people around me, especially at Deloitte, who looked like me. They were Muslim as well. Uh, Deloitte had a fantastic Muslim network big prayer room and that wasn't something I really expected to see in the workplace and this was like 2013 2014 um, so it was still relatively 
you know, there's a whole diversity initiative hadn't really kicked off yeah. as much as it has now. So that was really nice to see. So I finished university, alhamdulillah, graduated and opted to go straight into Deloitte on a graduate scheme. Three-year graduate scheme, straight into consulting. And I specialized in working with big banks and wealth managers, uh, helping them to navigate regulation, which was like the boring side. But I also got to see a few big banks um, launch digital products. And that was kind of what you would call fintech at the time. So that was really, really cool. Um, but I love my time at Deloitte, really cool people and um, an amazing Muslim network there as well. So seeing the digital product, was that your springboard to your thinking as it is today? Yeah, I, I mean, at the time I had no entrepreneurial ambition, but I started to notice something a bit strange that I was helping all these banks and wealth managers launch these products for retail consumption. I got to see some of the big uh, robo-advisors launch, like Nutmeg when it was coming out. It's since been acquired by JP Morgan, which helped make investing more accessible to the mass market. And everything I was seeing and helping these, these financial service, services firms to do was something that I could never use, my family couldn't use, people like me couldn't use. And it was strange because I was looking for things out there in the market that helps me. And I was always finding a wealth manager on a high street, you know, who could maybe help you if you were a high net worth, but you know, nothing which was helping yeah. a young person trying to find their feet. And everyone knew of the Islamic banks like Orion and, and Gatehouse, but people didn't have a great impression of them. So that was my first kind of thinking as to this is weird. You know, maybe something needs to change. And I was also growing increasingly uncomfortable with working in and around financial services, being that close to RIBA, you know, interest, one of the few things that Allah actually wages war on in, in the crowd, the only thing, um, it felt kind of strange. So I kind of got disenchanted with the whole thing and took a year out just to focus on myself. And that's where I went to do an MBA at Cambridge, actually. Yeah. Okay. What made you like, do the MBA? Because that, that was about a good four or five years afterwards. Yeah, about five years. So I was at Deloitte. I then moved to a small consulting firm called Alpha, where I really focused on fintech. Um, I think there were a few things. I was feeling more and more disenchanted with the industry. And also, it sounds weird, but there was this weird realization where I felt like I hadn't done anything for myself in my life. Okay. Everything that I had done was sort of to please someone else. Yeah. You know, whether it was my parents or I'm the eldest of three boys, so I always had to set an example, do something in that way. So I didn't tell anyone when I started applying. I just thought oh, maybe this is a good idea. So I knew someone who had done an MBA and they'd managed to pivot their career and they said it had helped them to springboard into a whole new industry and much higher pay. Um, so I thought maybe I could do it. I just started applying and sending admissions and I went and did the entrance exam called the GMAT. Um, and I didn't tell anyone until I actually got some offers from a few places. And that's where I was like, this is the first thing I've actually done, which is for me. Uh, but yeah, I had no idea what I wanted out of it. Just, I wanted to try and find something different. I've done an undergrad and undergrads yeah. are very chill. I've done it in accounting because first year do nothing, don't need to turn up to lectures. Yeah. Second year, similar. Third year, you kind of have to turn up. Yeah. And you can still end up with a 2-1. What's the difference between an undergrad and a master's? Because a master's is one year and I would expect it to be a lot more intense. Yeah, I think it depends. An MBA is different from a regular master's, I'd say. First of all, at, uh, at Cambridge anyway, it's very international. 
96% of your class are from other places in the world. A lot of Americans, Chinese people, Indian people, uh, people from everywhere. So it's super international. Um, you're also dealing with people who've usually had some work experience. So a typical masters, you'd go straight out of your undergrad into a master's program. Um, this one, you had people from financial services, from healthcare, um, you know, pharmaceuticals, engineering, consulting, all coming together. And it was really competitive as well. Because you had all of these people who felt like they were the stars, the stars of the show. And suddenly you're all being thrust together and have to compete with each other and also deal with competing cultures. So, you know, you might be in a group project with a Japanese person who's very polite and will never interrupt anyone next to an American person who's very loud and needs to make themselves known and will interrupt. So it was a real uh, crash course in um, like international relations. Um, but I think the difference was it was tense, but not in that you had to do exams and, and get the stuff and you know, do your homework. You had to do all those things, but no one really cared if you got like an A star versus a C. Uh, it was more, everyone was hyper-focused on what you were gonna do after the MBA. Okay. Everyone wanted that you know, six-figure six, six salary as soon as you, um, as soon as you graduated, they wanted an amazing brand name like a McKinsey, a Bain, or a BCG, which are the big management consulting firms. Um, so everyone was sort of chasing that. So people would do whatever they could, extracurricular-wise or application-wise, to um, secure that job. So does a master's actually give you that six-figure salary? <laughs> um, short answer, no. Short answer, no. But it depends. So. For an MBA, what I would say is you should only do an MBA um, for the brand recognition and the network. So I wouldn't do an MBA from anywhere. I would only do it from a reputable place where, you know, like a Harvard or a Stanford or a London Business School, somewhere like that. Um, Cambridge is a great name. Oxford's a great name. Somewhere which is actually going to open doors and let people take interviews with you. Um, and the second thing is the network. So the idea is that you're going to be studying with all these high potential, high potential people who are very full of themselves, but the, there's a high likelihood that many of them are going to go on to do big things and run companies and do all sorts. And suddenly you're on a WhatsApp group with all of them, mm -hmm. and I could be in Dubai or Hong Kong or in New York, and I could hit up like 10 to 20 people just to meet them and see opportunities, or in my case, raise money. Right, so that's kind of why I would recommend doing it. But no, it's it's not like a golden ticket to getting a six-figure salary at all. There's a lot of work behind. There's it. a lot of stuff. Yeah, a lot of stuff. A lot of unfair advantages for sure. So why did you choose? You did business business administration. Yeah. With digital transformation. Yeah, I, f I focused on that. So yeah. why did you? You really did your research. <laughs> I have to do my research. Yeah. Um, why did you choose that? Um, so. The MBA is like business administration in general, generally, so three terms. First term, you're doing accounting, economics, everything you would expect. Second term, you get to specialize. Uh, and I really like the digital stuff, mainly because fintech. I knew, even though I was trying to get away from fintech, it was also my specialty, and I wanted to do something in it. But the idea for like an Islamic finance thing hadn't been born yet. But something interesting happened. My best friend on the course was a Malaysian brother, we would like pray every day together, go find halal places in Cambridge together. Um, and his background before he started the MBA with me was in Islamic banking in Malaysia. Over there, Islamic banking is the norm. Over here, we only see it as like 
you know, an Orion branch, which you'll see in East London somewhere. It's, um, not, there well, it's not even there anymore. Right. So uh, he saw me paying for lunch one day with my, uh, my non-Islamic debit card. And he's like, what's going on? You know, we pray every day. We're, we're getting a lot of food. Why don't you use an Islamic bank? I was kind of like, oh, this is a good question. But like, I don't have a great opinion of them. Most people I know don't really use them. Uh, my dad had it for a while and, it, 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 you know, it wasn't doing very well. So he closed it down. And that's where this idea was born. Like, what if we could do it better? What if we could do this in a different way, which meant that people like us, our age, could start getting into Islamic finance? Muslims in the UK seem to be one of the most religiously minded Muslim groups in the Western world, right? They're eating halal, they're praying. The halal shopping festival, halal food festival is you know, one of the most popular events, Muslim events in this country. Why can't the same be true for people's finances? So that was the hypothesis. We then went about testing that in our final term. Um, and we, we did a nationwide survey where we interviewed a few thousand people and we asked them a few simple questions. Do you care about Islamic finance? Which 90% of them said yes. Do you currently use any Islamic finance products, whether it's a wealth manager or a bank? And fewer than 3% said yeah, which was a really big disparity. Like what's, what's causing that? And the top reasons were time and time again, uh, bad user experiences, poor customer service, and high fees, and an overall feeling of dis mistrust. People did not trust these brands in the same way that they would trust an HSBC or, or a Barclays. They, they hadn't created that feeling of trust amongst young people. Um, so then we thought, okay, there's something we can do here. And the first idea we had was like, let's make a Monzo for Muslims, right? A, de a, debit, a debit card for Muslims. So that's how Kestrel was born. Yeah, that's when we came up with the idea straight out of uni. Why the name Kestrel? <laughs> so we, Kestrel is the name of a bird. It's a little falcon in this country, um, and they eat a bunch of stuff, including starlings. And the joke was, we're going to take down Starling Bank. So Kestrel is going to come and eat Starling. And we just couldn't think of a better name than that. Um, so yeah, that's the name. So looking at, for example, Starling. Yeah. I've got a Starling account. The app is way better than Barclays Networks. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It's really good. But then if you compare Starling, which is better than Barclays Networks and the traditional banks, and they're way better than the Alrayan app, oh, yeah. which is still there, but they're phasing out the retail customers. Yes. Why do you think that is? Is it they're just not interested in the digital side or the lack of investment? You know, I think there's a few reasons. Um, I think at the end of the day, it comes down to revenue, what's making real money for them. And for a lot of these big banks, the model just doesn't work for them to target mass market Muslims. These aren't high net worth people. They're not uh, Emirati expats or people from Qatar or Kuwait who have millions who, are, who need an Islamic finance product to help them buy commercial property. We're talking about people who have a few hundred pounds who are just looking to put that into a savings account to maybe one day build that up to buy their own house, inshallah. And those are not people who you can make a huge amount of money from in a typical banking banking setup. So I think that's one, that's one answer for it. But the idea is that a fintech, which is lighter, leaner, more agile, could perhaps pick up on that. So a lot of people have been trying it. Okay, what is fintech exactly? Yeah, it's a really good question, right? Fintech, financial technology, is basically any piece of technology that is trying to revolutionize or significantly change the business model of an existing financial services firm. So 
Um, a really good example is the ATM, right? When the ATM came out in, I think, 1963 or 1964, uh, it changed the game. Suddenly, people didn't have to go into a bank branch. They, they could take out money wherever, right? So that's a fantastic piece. Um, PayPal, right? Sending money over the internet. Uh, Apple Pay, Google Pay, being able to pay through your phone. Those are all like game-changing pieces of financial technology. And now we're seeing fintech a lot more commonly used because you've you've had yielders, for example, in the past. Yeah. That's the first time I heard of the word fintech. I'm like, yeah. okay, cool, what is this? Yeah. You've got Kestrel, you've got a whole lot of other companies as well. Fider, I think, part of Fider, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, and they're revolutionizing finance and the way it's used. Yeah. With Kestrel, what is your objective? So what, what we want to do is to ensure that no Muslim, whoever they are, wherever they are, feels like they have to compromise when it comes to growing their wealth. No Muslim should ever have to feel like, if I want to invest or I want to buy a house, I've got to go with the conventional one. I've got to go to Barclays and take out a mortgage with them. Right? That's our objective, to make sure that you could access Islamic finance the same way you could find halal chicken. That's really what we're trying to do. And with Kestrel at the moment, or well, how far are you away from having this, yeah. for example, solution? Because it's not obviously it can't be done overnight. No, absolutely. So we started this. The idea was born in 2019. Um, we went back to work in our day jobs whilst we were also trying to raise money, and that, that's like a whole different story. Um, but it, basically, we've been doing this for four years now. And whilst the mission stayed the same of helping Muslims grow their wealth without compromise, the, the path to getting there has varied significantly. Yeah. So we started off with this Monza for Muslims, a debit card for Muslims. Very quickly dropped that idea. Because when we spoke to people about what they actually struggled with, most people were very happy using their Starlinks, their Monzos, their HSBCs. A debit card just with like a Muslim branding wasn't going to cut it. And we saw a few of our competitors try that, and unfortunately, it didn't work out, and, and they're no longer um, they're no longer running. But you know, we quickly pivoted away from that. The other thing we noticed was Muslims in general struggle a lot with personal finance. There was a great platform which was coming up at the time called Islamic Finance Gurus, which were making fantastic content about how to start investing, how to start saving for a house, um, all sorts of things. We thought, what if we could help people action that? So we took advantage of a great regulation in the UK called open banking, which means that if you're using Starling, HSBC, whatever UK bank, you could plug that straight into a third party, in this case, Kestrel. So you can link whatever bank account you have into Kestrel. We can see all of your data, all of your money in one place. And through that, we can help you create a budget. We can help you save towards your short-term goals and ideally invest towards longer-term goals in a halal way. So in that way, it's more like an add-on to whatever bank account you're using to make your money more halal over time through good personal finance. So that's how the Muslim Money app was born. And that was the first thing that we did with it. Um, but then a really interesting thing happened. And it goes back to that idea of a different path to, to fulfilling that mission. Those Islamic banks that we, you know, that, that their failings, if you, if you want to call it that, had inspired Kestrel's birth, started to reach out, for, reach out to us. So um, Bank Islam, which is one of the biggest Islamic banks in Malaysia, reached out and said, we like what you're doing. We've been seeing what you're doing in the UK. We want to launch our own digital bank. We're trying to digitize. Can you help us to do that? Can you white label what you've created in the UK? Give it to us and we'll pay you a monthly fee for that. Um, and it will just help us get to get to market way faster. 
So suddenly this whole different revenue line for us was born of B2B, where we're not just the Muslim money app, we're helping whatever bank better appeal to Muslim customers. Were you thinking of B2B beforehand or were no. you solely B2B? No, like Suhan alerts, everything, a lot of things that have happened at Kestrel, very few of them have been planned. Like I can't give credit, take credits um, for those things. It's literally just the color of Allah. Opportunity falls in your lap. Absolutely, yeah. So now, then you've changed your tact for doing more B2B, but your heart still lies with B2C. Absolutely, yeah. So B2B, Alhamdulillah, is already taking off. We're working with a few banks in Malaysia, in the UAE, we're looking at Saudi now and Pakistan as well. And that's what's you know, kept the lights on. It's allowed us to grow. We've gone from a two-person team to nearly 25 now. Um, we have offices in London and in Malaysia. And it's been great working with these banks. But at the same time, we're not seeing as much impact here in the UK. And we still want to turn our attention to that. So inshallah, this year, 2024, is when we want to start making that change. Okay, so I want to talk about the app itself yeah so correct me if i'm wrong the app you can connect that to a bank whichever you're with and then you can help them budget um cut out extra costs help them invest and grow their wealth essentially yeah Yeah. when you that sounds like a very complicated app to create yeah so how did you create it and what's your experience behind tech yeah so i'm not a tech person at all um i'm I don't know, not even jack of all trades, I'm just a master of nothing, but uh, we found the right people. I think one of the key skill sets that a CEO has to have is you've got to leave your pride at the door, recognize that it's your job to surround yourself with people much smarter and much more skilled than yourself. So myself and Dying very quickly found Irfan, Irfan Radzi, who's our CTO, very qualified CTO. He was running the biggest e-commerce platform in Malaysia called Homo, he was their CTO. And he also happened to be an old school friend of Dying's. So we brought him on board, Um, he loved the idea, he really wanted to try and make a change and he loved the mission of helping Muslims specifically. So he joined us and slowly, slowly through his network built out the tech team over in Malaysia. So we've got 15 people in in that office just purely on tech from front end, back end, data science and and user experience. Why do you need so many people for one app? What is it? Well, it grew. It grew massively. So the app, we didn't need that many people. But as soon as we got banking clients, suddenly we needed to service all these big banking requirements. Uh, we had loads of um, loads of different deadlines to meet, loads of different customizations as well. So it's not as simple as you want budgeting and it's going to be the same for you. And you, everyone wanted something slightly different. So yeah, Alhamdulillah, it's a decent-sized team now. And then... The app itself. Yeah. Did you have to raise money for it? Because you're talking about yes, funding. we did. Yeah, we raised, raised one hundred sixty thousand dollars. No, we raised about one point five million now um, over the last four years in total. So, which was the one you went through? Cedars was that like yeah, the initial that was, round? That was like the initial one. So, the the first round we did, two thousand nineteen, I had gotten a job at PwC straight out of uni, but we were still working on this idea for Castrol. And we would very naively thought we're going to create this business plan, this pitch deck, and we're going to send it around to all of these venture capital firms and they're just going to throw money at us. And I think I sent it around to like 97 different VCs around the world uh, and some angel investors as well, which are high net worth people who might just want to invest in it. Um, And we heard back from three people, right? Two of them said no and one of them said, you know, I I want to talk about this. 
And that person was Haris Rafan, who was one of like the founding fathers of Islamic finance in this country. So he's helped us massively in that. But we didn't get any investors from it. So we changed tact. We started to hang around at these Islamic finance conferences. We went to this one in Istanbul, uh, which Haris invited us to. And that's where we met one of our first angel investors, which was Sultan Chowdhury, who was the CEO of Orion Bank in the UK. And he just left Orion at the time. He liked what we were doing, but we got way more out of talking to him for about an hour face to face than us sending a, you know, a cold email by pitch deck. So Alhamdulillah, through him and a few other individuals, they invested about, I think 150K in total, okay. which was enough for us to say, we're gonna quit our jobs and try and do this, right, and try and make this work. So that was the first round. We then did a crowdfunding round on Cedars about a year later, uh, where we raised about half a million. Um, so that was great, because suddenly we had all of these beta customers, people who wanted to try Kestrel, actually invest and buy into it. And those are some of our most active and strongest customers today. Um, and then we kind of went institutional with the most recent round. So there was a VC accelerator called Techstars, Techstars London, uh, which at the time was run by Salim Chowdhury. Uh, and you're seeing a pattern here, a lot of Muslims helping Muslims here, yeah. which is great. Um, but he really liked the idea. So they invested into us alongside Wahid Invest. So Wahid Invest have a venture arm called Wahid Ventures. It was then called Wahid X. So they led our most recent round. Um, and yeah, Alhamdulillah, we just closed that late last year. So in total, we've raised about 1.5 million um, over the course of that. When you're raising money for investment, how do you have to restructure the company? Yeah, so when you start the company, it's fully owned by the founders. Yeah. I would always recommend having an equal, an equal split between all founders. Um, but the idea is you set a valuation, say, for example, it's 1 million. And if people are giving you 100K, you'd give away 10%, 10% of it. It might come with more rights. So if someone wants preference shares and there's a debate as to whether those are Sharia compliant or not, those will come with special um, special things attached to it. Um, and some people might want board seats, all that kind of stuff. But that's basically how you would raise money. Um, my other thing is I would never recommend anyone does it. If you can avoid having to raise money, uh, I would, because it's a nightmare. It takes up all of your time um, and just don't expect your companies to grow significantly whilst you're fundraising. Obviously, because you have to spend a lot of time servicing these investors. Yeah, 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 yeah. And then how much did you know about raising money, giving board seats, etc., before you started raising money? Um, not a lot. There was a great podcast. Podcast, it was like, um, there's a, a great VC accelerator, the biggest one in the world, called Y Combinator in Silicon Valley. And they had uploaded all of their terms teachings to YouTube. So I just watched, I think, like 30 odd episodes of that every day on my commute. I'd be doing that, making notes, but always specifically to Kestrel. So they were things like how to talk to users and how to build products and launch, how to launch as quickly as possible every two weeks um, and how to fundraise was a big part of that. So it really helped me to understand what fundraising culture was like in the US. Very different to the UK. In the US, uh, it's all about high valuations and big money. And if you go and ask someone for 10 to 20 million, it's not a big deal. Over here, people are way, way more, more conservative, both in terms of money they'll give you and also valuations. 
Why, why is that? Uh, there's a few things. If you look at the VC venture capital market in the US, a pretty high percentage of them, more than 80%, are former founders themselves. So they are risk takers by nature. They've done it. They understand it. In the UK, it's very different. They're often former accountants, uh, finances, investment banking kind of background, much more conservative, much more likely to take risk. Okay, so it's just a risk averse. Very different culture, very different culture. Over there, it's the Silicon Valley type mindset. So very different. What pressure does raising finance have on yourself as a founder and CEO? Because now it's, you're not mm. working for yourself. You're working with a whole bunch of the other people who have mm. their own investment goals. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, I think it grounds you. It makes you feel more responsible in the same way as when you become an employer and you have people working for you and suddenly the decisions that you make or the ideas that you have and you've drawn up on a spreadsheet or on a PowerPoint are directly going to impact someone's livelihood. You know, the money that they make to feed their kids and send their kids to school, that can be um, really humbling and a, a little bit anxiety inducing. I think it's good to have shareholders that keep you in check. So some of our biggest shareholders, people like Sultan, um, you know, we'll check in with regularly. Uh, we make sure that they're updated, kept up to date. And it makes me a better founder doing that. Sending those monthly updates, keeping track of the key metrics, making sure that we're in an upward growth trajectory and, you know, inshallah, going to continue in that way. Um, I think it does make us better business people. Do they help you set certain key metrics yeah. and give you that? added value as well as yeah, the funds. For sure. Um, so certain investors will be more like smart investors, people yeah. who are really there to help you excel. So like Salim from Techstars was fantastic because not only did, was it just, he didn't just write us a check, it was a whole you know, three months of intensive, we're going to transform the company. Um, oh, this is what you think you should be tracking? This is really what I think you should be focused on as your one true metric for success. So things like that were game-changing for us. So if you are going to raise money, I would encourage you to really think about the people you're bringing onto your cap table. And then well, this was, a lot of the funding was after the B2B. Was it before the B2B? Some was before, yeah. So we did the crowdfunding before. But things got a lot easier after B2B. As soon as we secured our first uh, banking contract, it also coincided with a downturn in the funding market. You know, we, we talked about a little bit about this before, but in like 2017, 2018, the times when Monzo and Starling and Nutmeg and all these other big fintechs, as well as non-fintechs like Uber, people like them were coming up. It was very easy to raise money. We were in a low interest environment. Everyone was very bullish mm. on startups. So they were throwing money at them. And there was this concept called blitz scaling, which was it doesn't matter how you're going to make money. I don't care about that. Just grow. Just get more customers and I will feed you hundreds of millions of dollars to help you to do that. And a lot of fintechs benefited from that at that point. Just massive marketing campaigns, referral schemes, just getting as many users as you can. Worry about profitability later. Things changed. And now we live in an environment where um, to raise money, you have to have a very, very clear path to profitability completely set out. And if you don't have recurring revenue already and significant recurring revenue, um, a real path to making 1 million a year, people don't really entertain you. 1 million net. Yeah, it's kind of this um, 1 million in revenue. 
revenue. One million okay. in revenue. It's I don't know if it's the right thing or not, but a lot of venture capital firms, even some angel investors, use that as a metric for when are you going to be making the one million a year? You know, and that's when you'd be primed to maybe become a Series A company where you can raise serious money and grow significantly. I think it's because that first million is the hardest to make. Yeah. After that, it becomes a lot easier to make it two, three, four, because you just have to repeat and yeah. then tweak as well. It's like that first B2B client. So you can spend nine to 18 months trying to get that first big enterprise client. Um, and it can, it can seem crazy. And we almost died in that period, to be honest. But Alhamdulillah, as soon as you get the first one, it's far easier to appeal to others. Okay, I want to take you back to the app, and I'm going off yeah. on a bit of a tangent, but back to the app now. You've created this app. Yeah. How did you start raising awareness? Yeah, I mean, we just started talking to people. So we would hold events in our offices, like every month or so. Um, so that was great. But then a really annoying thing happened called COVID. So every the world went into lockdown. But we didn't let that stop us. There was a great app at the time called Clubhouse. I don't know if you remember yes, that. Yes, yes, yes. So we used to do, uh, every week we would do three sessions on Clubhouse. And that was fantastic. We, we used to get hundreds of people coming into these rooms. And we used to talk about personal finance for Muslims. We would talk about um, startups, like the life of a startup founder and what fundraising was like and pitching and all this kind of thing. And we also do Islamic Finance 101, you know, where we talk about why a river is haram. You know, what is an Islamic mortgage? Um, so that was great. We got a great little following from that, which then carried over into our app when we launched. The other thing that was really good for us was TikTok. So we used to make a lot of educational stuff on TikTok, which really helps us to appeal to a younger audience. But people who were very, mashallah, very keen on their din and trying to make their money more halal. What was like, the general feedback you had from TikTok yeah. Clubhouse? Because obviously you're given a lot of yeah. value in terms of not just budgeting, but the Islamic side of it. Yeah, I, we learned very quickly that budgeting is important, but people find it really boring. Like really boring, like no one wants to do it. In terms of, a con in terms of content? Um, not in content. Content was fine, but in terms of the app functionality itself, okay. in terms of the product. Like it's great that, you know, you can set a budget and see how much you're saving every month. But the typical person that we were appealing to, at least, found it relatively boring. People wanted to see a way of growing their wealth in some way. They wanted that real product. So that's um, what we're doing now. When we're re-looking at the Kestrel app, inshallah, we're looking at two things. First is the halal savings account. It's kind of crazy that we don't have a digital savings account for Muslims in the UK. That doesn't exist. There isn't like a Monzo equivalent, which is purely halal, FSCS protected, and fully available just on your phone, as opposed to going through a branch. So inshallah in 2024, that's what we're looking to launch, the savings account. Uh, the other thing is investing. So we have a few people looking at investing. Uh, Wahid Invest, uh, doing, been doing great stuff in that. Fiverr allowing you to invest into properties. But I think there's still room for a product that helps people reach the mass market. Um, so inshallah, that's, that's kind of where we want to look at, but starting at the savings product. Yeah. So the savings product would essentially be someone has put £100 in mm. and you would then invest on their behalf in things like Wahid or other Sharia com yeah. companies? So, so, so really what we're doing is we want to launch the UK's first halal digital savings account for Muslims. Um, and we want to do that by partnering with one of these Islamic banks in the UK. These guys have a banking license. They have the ability to 
save people's money in a halal way, and it's also FSCS protected. But for a number of reasons, they haven't really invested into digital. So it's really more of an embedded banking play. We could take their savings product, have it within the Kestrel app, own the customer onboarding journey, get you an account within two minutes, less than that, and just help you to you know, put money into that savings account as regularly as you'd like and help it to grow in that way. And what's like the minimum amount a person is able to invest? So we'd love to get it as low as possible. Uh, if it's easy access, hopefully it can just be rounding up spare change and putting it into that. Okay, like money box. Yeah, like money box. Like money box, exactly like that. Yeah. So like a Muslim money box. That's where we want to get it to. Okay, and then you just invest accordingly. Exactly. But where is it at the moment? Where are we with that at the moment? Inshallah, we can hopefully, maybe at the time this video comes out, but we're hoping to make a big announcement on that. Okay. But we want to launch that sort of this summer, inshallah. Yeah. And so going back to when you like initially launched and you're raising awareness, um, after the COVID part and after mm. you started a lot of your digital content, what happened next? So we came out of COVID, we moved into our office, we launched the first version of our app, which was just the budgeting part. And we had about a thousand beta users. So beta users are people using it, testing it out, giving rapid feedback. So that was great. They're um, still part of our community to get today and we really rely on their feedback. We did a crowdfunding round. A lot of people from there invested into it where we raised some money. Um, but we, we quickly realized we needed something else to sustain ourselves. Alhamdulillah, this bank from Malaysia reached out to us, started talking to us and saying, you know, we like what you're building. Could we build it for, uh, could you build it for us in Malaysia? But in that period of talking to them, it was almost like a year's process. Oh, wow. And in that time, we were burning through the money that we'd raised, the money that we raised. And those few final months, I remember um, it was Ramadan and I thought, you know, this could be it for us. This could really be it. I hadn't drawn a salary. My co-founders hadn't drawn a salary for maybe like five months or so, just so that we could sustain the team and keep everything going. Alhamdulillah, when we had like, I think we had like one month's worth of money left in the bank, the bank finally was like, let's do this, let's sign. And we're like, that's great. Can you pay us in advance, please? So we asked for um, a month's uh, payment up front, which was great. Alhamdulillah, things started to take off from there. That year, you said you were burning through all the money. What was going through your mind? What what were yeah. you trying to do to... Because obviously you're working on this client, but... Yeah. The, I mean, I really wanted to make the B2C version work. We launched something called the Halal Marketplace, where the idea was you could view all these different investment products, alternative assets, and they were all third parties. So we had people like Yielders who were on there, which allows you to crowd invest into, into properties. At the time, they allowed that. We had Minted, which allowed you to invest into gold. Um, and we had a few other people on there as well. We also had a um, financial advice service where you could get a free chat with an investment advisor focused on halal investing. So we had all of these things, but we realized quite quickly, it wasn't really a full digital seamless experience and people weren't engaging with it. So people loved the idea, but then they would go to it and they'd have to click a link and it would take them to a third party website and engagement just fell off a cliff. At that point, people wanted everything to be within the app. And that's where we really struggled. I think the other thing was um, it wasn't our own kind of product. And that's really what I want to do now.
and that is this halal savings exactly right? yeah so now it's you've spent a lot of time on the b2b side and your heart lies with the b2c yeah why does it matter so much for you because at the end of the day when i look at muslims and you know i got married and we you know i've got a i've got a son now and he's one years old i don't want him to grow up in a similar situation that we had to you know i don't i don't want them to feel like Islamic investing or Islamic finance is other or hard to achieve or hard to do and they have to compromise. I feel like Muslims in this country, especially recently with everything that's been happening in Gaza, they've really been voting with their wallets. You know, the boycott initiatives have been fantastic. A lot of people have been questioning as to whether they've been working or not. But you've got the CEO of McDonald's coming out or Starbucks or, you know, uh, Netflix coming and saying, you know, don't, don't boycott us where, you know, we're not trying to pick a side here. So it does matter. And I think Muslims have for so long had to, been forced into a position where we have had to compromise. Look at the student loan issue. In 2013, David Cameron promised that no Muslim would have to um, you know, take, out a, take out a conventional student loan, that there would be a halal product. Here we are 11 years later and what's been done? Absolutely nothing, you know? Um, so I want Muslims to feel like we do have a voice and that voice matters. And if you want to buy a home, you don't have to engage with interest to do that. I think the other thing is, is the, the Muslim pound, as I like to call it, is important in the sense that it helps Muslims support Muslims. And we were talking off air before. Before you wouldn't see the uncles the Indian uncle working with the Pakistani uncle because they just don't like each other because of history, because of the partition and everything. They just don't like each other. Now we're seeing in the finance space or the fintech space, FIDA, Islamic Finance Guru, yourselves, Yodas, all trying to work together. And there's, there might not necessarily initially be a wider goal, but like you said, the events over the last few months have just pushed this and fast-tracked it a bit more that everyone's like, you know, there is a wider goal and this is it. Absolutely. One thing we've been historically bad at in this country is, um, I think, keeping positions of power. I think we've been really, really bad at doing that, whether it's lobbying power in government or if someone is really senior in a big financial services firm, we don't really leave the door open to other people, to other Muslims. I think that's something that is changing your rights. Absolutely. And it's less about where you're from because so many of us are just born here or we're second or third or fourth generation. There are so many intermarriages. I think Islam in the West is really going to go in an interesting direction now. Can you see in the next five years there being like an even bigger change? Because I think the tide has slowly shifted. And like you said, with the boycott movement, yeah, we're having Starbucks, McDonald's backtrack, Netflix backtrack on things that they've said previously um, can you see in the next five years there being a change especially with a lot of Muslim companies working together to try and build wealth because back in even 10 years ago you'd hear talks in the mosque saying money is the root of all evil you should yeah. want to have money you're greedy etc now it's more no we can have money but utilize it for the greater good so my honest answer is um, I hope so inshallah <laughs> I'm very conscious that I might be might have a very London centric mindset, where yeah, it seems like there's so much happening because we got Pfizer, Wahid, Kestrel, IFG, 
Um, you know, who, who knows who's going to pop up this year. But if you go further out to places like Leicester, Manchester, Birmingham, Scotland, um, Derby, have they heard of us? Do they know about us? Some people, yeah, but I don't know. I think we've got to do a much better job working together and investing in our own marketing to, to make sure that this is a truly nationwide issue that we're solving. The thing, the thing I see is when you're investing in your own marketing, again, you need the funds to do that. Yeah. And I think that's the, our issue isn't the lack of money. I think there's plenty of Absolutely. money. Like we, we manage three, four hundred properties and so many of them are Muslim landlords. So we know there's a lot of money and we know, obviously, we pay the rents out. So we know how much money is just in this part, East London. Yeah. How can we encourage more? people to work together, especially the older generation where they're still skeptical, they don't necessarily understand fintech, they don't understand the wider goal. Mm. How can we encourage more of our older generation to work together or at least help? So I take a page out of Brother's book where you know he did a fantastic job going on roadshows and going and speaking at masjids directly to people, directly to elders, encouraging them and helping them to understand why this matters and why this could be an alternative. So over the past seven to eight years, he's built fantastic, um, fantastic relations with these different communities. And I think we can capitalize on the work that people like Raza, people like Ibrahim from IFG, people like Janed from Wahid have done to help the next set of Islamic finance or Islamic fintechs to come along. I say now we're like in the third wave of Islamic finance. So first wave was like Arayan, Gatehouse, HSBC Amana when they came yeah. out. Islamic um, Bank of Britain. Exactly, yeah, Islamic Bank of Britain, as, as our Rayan were called. And what those guys were trying to do was they were trying to operate within a system which was not really made, you know, to suit the pure risk-sharing and equity environment that a, a truly Islamic system needed. But they were trying to make it as halal as possible. So that's where these Islamic banks started to bring up, and, you know, credit to them for doing that because... Of all the countries in the Western world, the UK really stands out as pretty much the only place we have Islamic banking. Uh, the second wave of Islamic finance started to come about more recently, like 2015 to 2020. And that's where you had a lot of fintechs coming up in different categories. So you had people like Wahid coming up and tackling investing in the robo-advice space. You had people tackling property, allowing you to get into property like Yielders and, and FIDA and, and Properteers Group. And you had digital banks. So you had My Ahmed and Risk, you know, no longer no longer around, but you had people trying to tackle that. And what they were doing was they were trying to catch up, where, like you said, you had Starling up here, Barclays here, and all the Islamic finance people here. The Islamic finance people were trying to catch up with at least the Barclays and, and the NatWest as their apps were at the time. And now we're like in this third wave. And the third wave of people who, inshallah, are gonna use new technologies, generative AI, blockchain, crypto, um, and even beyond that, to really try to catch up with the Starlings, the Monzos, and excel that. And I think that is what I'd love to see over the next five years. What, what do you think is the fourth wave? <laughs> the fourth wave? I'm not asking you to look into a crystal ball, but... Uh, I'd, I'd love to see the fourth wave as being where it's not about it being Islamic anymore. It's just a good product. It's an ethical product. And it doesn't matter if you're Muslim or not. When non-Muslims start to understand that this is 
a much better financial system, not just for themselves, but for everyone, for the wider community, that's where we've made it, right? Where that is the ultimate financial system. I don't know how we're going to get there, when we're going to get there, how we're going to do it, but inshallah, we're building a platform upon which people can build towards that. I think in, I know like, for example, Al-Rayyan Bank, a lot of non-Muslims do put their money yeah. in there yeah. and they use it, well, not anymore, but they used to use their home purchase plan products before they yeah. removed them. Same with the Gatehouse. Yeah. Same with the Gatehouse, they used to do that. So there is an ethical element there that people like. For sure. We don't use, we don't like interest. We don't want to use interest for ethical reasons. Um, so we're going to put the money in the bank. So I think that is there. I think it's just generally on the wider yeah. public. But I think the difficulty is, is you have your marketing as the Muslim money app. So mm. naturally, and you're targeting Muslims. Islamic finance guru is targeting Muslims. And I think it's the fourth wave is probably companies where they're not, like you said, they're not targeting Muslims and they're marketing. It's just, this is why you should invest with us. Yeah, I mean, I'll tell you why we did that. Because originally Castrol, we didn't, we didn't brand ourselves as the Muslim money app. Um, we were just Castrol, an ethical fintech company. And something interesting was happening. We were having Muslims coming to the website or to our Instagram, whatever, and, and they weren't seeing enough targeted marketing towards them. So they weren't getting it and they weren't downloading it. And then we had non-Muslims coming and a lot of non-Muslims came, but they would so suddenly see like a hint of halal somewhere. Like, oh, these guys are Sharia approved or we've got Muthi Faraz Adam as our Sharia advisor. And they would just run away from that as well. So there's like an otherness. And I think we've seen that with the response to, you know, what's been happening in, in Gaza right now, where unfortunately, we're still not quite seen as, as the same mm. as other people in society. And we've always kind of known this, but that's really come, come to the forefront uh, recently. So that's kind of why we did it. We thought, look, let's just be true to ourselves. We're building this for Muslims, by Muslims. Let's just own that branding for now. But if we can get to a point where it doesn't matter whether you're Muslim or not, this is just a truly better product. That's where I'd love to get to. Yeah. I think you had to do that in terms of your marketing anyway, because it is for Muslims. And if I, generally, like for example, if I'm looking at a bank, what's the difference between Starling, Monzo and Revolut? They're all pretty similar. Yeah. But then Fasi, Kestrel, Muslim money app is like, okay, cool, that's a bit different. Obviously, it's a different bank in total, but in yeah. terms of when you have your savings account, this is for Muslims. So you're naturally just going to do a bit more reading onto that and say, okay, let me see how that can help. Whereas Starling example, I'm not, it's yeah. just a bank. It does come with a fair amount of skepticism as well. I think Muslims are one of the hardest markets to target, especially with financial services, because people have been burned so much in the past. So they often approach Islamic finance firms with a, a serious amount of skepticism. Is this legit? Is this real? Uh, you know, my sheikh said it's all haram. I'm going to throw it all away. Um, so it's, it's tough. It's a rough market to try and launch something in. But unfortunately for yourself, you're carrying the weight of all the previous, the first and second wave, yeah. where either the banks have closed down or people have already have a negative thought over Islamic Bank of Britain yeah. because like, oh, are they really Islamic whatever it is so now everything Islamic that comes it's like we've yeah. got a hidden trauma in society where it's like it is exactly is that it? a hidden trauma a hidden trauma when it comes to Islamic finance um, but which is why it's a lot easier to do things with banks in the UAE or Malaysia where Islamic finance is just the norm so using that platform that B2B revenue which we've acquired so far and helped us to get to profitability 
I think now that Alhamdulillah we're at a point of stability, we can really look to try and tackle that problem here. So you know on the app, yeah. can like can you use the saving product from Malaysia UAE to facilitate users over here? So can I go on the app from the UK and invest in the saving product? Unfortunately, not not internationally. You okay. can't do that yet. Um, maybe who knows what happens by the end of the year, but uh, right now you can't do that. Right now, what you can do is we'll create a budget for you. You can tell input your goals into the app. Maybe you're saving for a car or a house uh, or a wedding or just to retire. It will pull money into pots, savings pots. And um, once it's done that, inshallah, what we want to do is allow you to invest that money and grow that money in that way. We also calculate your zakat automatically. So we're partnered with National Zakat Foundation. We can calculate and automate as much of the zakat calculation as possible. It can be quite an onerous process to look at your assets, take away your liabilities, see whether what is zakatable. Um, and we also do Sharia stock screening. So if you want to see which individual stocks are Sharia compliant or not to invest in, we can do that for you as well. So that's kind of the services we offer right now. Okay, what's your number one saving tip for Muslims? My number one savings tip for Muslims? I think what I'd say is really look at the time horizon for your goals. Your savings should always be goals-based and think about when you want to achieve them. If it's something like a, a car or, or getting married or sending a kid to school uh, and it's all within the next five years, you're much better off just saving money every month than looking to invest it. And the idea there is that investing can be you know, quite volatile. Uh, suddenly there could be a market crash and something which you needed the money for in a month's time or two months' time, you might have seen a serious depreci depreciation in value for. Um, if it's something which is a longer-term goal, like just saving for retirement, something beyond five years, by all means invest. Invest into a great, you know, a, a Sharia-compliant fund, which things might be volatile in the short term, but in the long run, things tend to move upwards and to the right. And a great example is if you look at the stock markets around COVID, Right. If you had invested into, I don't know, the FTSE 100, some FTSE tracking fund, yeah, just before everything happened, suddenly, oh my God, oh my God, everything's crashed. And if you were depending on that money, right, you would have lost it all. But, you know, over time, I think seven, eight months later, the market had recovered and now it's like three times the size of where it was in February 2020. So long-term investing, short-term saving. And what's your number one budgeting tip? My number one budgeting tip. Well, first I would say is download Kestrel and we can help you to budget for you. Um, That's going to get clipped up. <laughs> the second thing, uh, the second thing I'd say is really try and have a savings goal every month. Okay, I've got you know whatever your salary is. Maybe you want to save twenty percent, ten percent, or maybe even five percent. But really try and stick to that, and then have a list. Some people make a spreadsheet. Some people use an app like Kestrel or something else but see what your essential spendings are and your non-essential spendings. What are the things that are really, really essential? And I don't mean like a PlayStation Netflix. subscription yeah. or Netflix, but things like your bills, your groceries, you know, whatever that might be. And then what are your non-essentials do you really need, right? Do you have like a real shopping issue where you're just buying new clothes or new shoes or games or whatever it is every month? And then I would always say, go back to that horizon mindset what are your goals over the next 5, 10, 20 years? And a great tip a mentor of mine gave me was write out your goals in life, whether it's financial or family or hobbies, what you want to see in the next 5 years, 10 years, 20 years. Write it down, really work hard and think about it, and then just put that away. 
and revisit it every every year or so just to see how things have changed. But that exercise of of looking at that and seeing how you want your life to plan to pan out um, can really help you think in that long term long term way. How has it helped you? It helped me with my career massively. Um, so I first did this when I just left Deloitte. Okay. So I sat down and I thought, okay, within the next five years, Islamically, I want to I want to start learning Arabic, right? I want to learn this much of the Quran. I want to do this family-wise. I want to get married. I want to have kids. I want to do this. And uh, financially, I want to have a house. I want to have a car. I want to do all of that. So it's a very generic... Yeah, it was pretty sort of generic, but then you start making it more specific. Okay, like job-wise, I want to look at this company. I was really obsessed with trying to get into Oliver Wyman or like a company like that. So I was like, I really want to really want to start doing that. And that's where the idea of the MBA actually came from, where I thought, okay, in order to try and fulfill these things, this is what I need to get my salary to. And to get that kind of job, maybe I need this kind of qualification or I need to start doing this. You don't need to stick to the plan, but it's a great kind of mental ex- exercise to go through. So the same thing that happened in your business in Kestrel, where you had your mission, but the path changed. Exactly. The same thing has happened. Exactly that. I mean, that little piece of paper that I made, it, you know, nothing. I didn't. Nothing that was on that is actually what happened. Like you plan and plan. Allah is the best of planners. But Alhamdulillah, things have worked out um, how they were meant to work out. You mentioned a lot of people in this episode. You've, you mentioned a mentor, you mentioned Sultan Chowdhury uh, and Raza as well, a whole lot of other people. Yeah. It seems like you're networking a lot and trying to pick bits of information. How important has that been in your career so far? It's been vital. Yeah. Um, I wouldn't be anywhere today if it wasn't for me listening and, and taking feedback and learnings from people around me. But the first person for sure is my dad. So I don't know how it didn't come up before now, but my dad is one of my co-founders. We brought him in quite early on because we, something was happening whenever Dying and I were going into rooms and pitching to people. Did your dad have a banking background? Yeah, so he was like global head of audit at, um, at Goldman Sachs. Sorry, not Goldman, sorry, at Bank of New York and Royal Bank of Scotland after that as well. So, and then he's launched his own consultancy. So he had like a banking background had been in financial services for like 30 years, had worked with a financial regulator. And one day he came along with us on one of our pitches. And this just happened to be like the worst pitch we'd ever made. So it was with a VC in London and they called us into their offices and they seemed quite excited about it. And they sort of ambushed us because they had another one of their portfolio companies, which was another digital bank at the time. I don't know if they're still around, but their CEO was in the room and he was Muslim. And they were like, oh, maybe he can give like a good take on this. And we walked into the room and I've never met someone who was more abrasive and more rude. Like in my, never personally in my life um, in that kind of business setting. Like immediately he just launched into an attack about this is, you know, BS. The, you know, how could you be teaching me something? I've been doing this for longer than you've been born. Why do you think this is going to work? And, you know, dying, really good guy, was just sat there quietly. And unfortunately, I started, like, going back at him. I just, you know, got really angry and started defending it. And my dad was just sat there, like, what is going on? Um, and the only thing that stopped it was when my dad actually stepped it and was like, actually, if you look at the figures and you look at the discounted cash flow model that they've been doing and some of the traction they've gotten so far, things are actually going, okay, 
And he wasn't saying anything different to what I had already said, but they actually sat and listened to him. And that's where we thought, do you want to come in as like CFO? <laughs> because people aren't taking us seriously. We were like two 20-somethings trying to teach people, you know, things that could be different. Um, and alhamdulillah, things changed after that. A lot of our investors came on board because they saw my dad and a few gray hairs as someone more reliable and dependable, rightly or wrongly. It did change things in that way. What's next for Kestrel? I know you obviously mentioned the, yeah. the halal savings, the first halal savings yeah. app, I should mention. Yeah, um, so we want to launch the UK's first digital savings account for Muslims. It doesn't exist, it's crazy, it hasn't existed, so we want to launch that here in the UK, inshallah. Um, we want to expand further in Malaysia, inshallah, open an office in the UAE this year. We're also looking at Saudi, Pakistan, and Indonesia. So not just working with banks now, but wealth managers, helping them to digitally transform and better serve Muslim customers as well. So that's what we're focused on. So would you also then look at other Western countries? You've got America, Canada, yeah. Australia, New Zealand, yeah. and partner up with companies there so you can make your app truly global. That's the Muslims dream. In the, Western world. the real dream is if we could convince a non-Islamic bank to launch an Islamic window, if we can convince them that there is enough demand and Muslims are really going to go for this, put their money where their mouth is and actually go for Islamic finance, convince a bank to launch the next HSBC Amana, right? Or Lloyds had their Islamic banking accounts before they closed them down. That's really the dream. And I think that's endgame. I think once a conventional bank chooses to step into the arena and launch their own Islamic window again, they would take, you know, just sweep up the market because then you've got the branding and the recognition and the trust that comes with like an HSBC or a Barclays or a Lloyd's, maybe not Barclays after everything that's happened uh, recently. Um, but if they stepped yeah. into the arena, that's it. So that's where I'd love to get to. If you were sitting next to Arib at 18 years of age, yeah, when he wanted to study zoology, what would you say to him? You know, I, I think it was is tough. I think 18 is a tough age. Um, you feel like the decisions that you make there are really going to make or break your life. You know, you're told if you don't study hard in this test, you don't get this A star. If you get an A instead of an A star, you've ruined your life. Um, I just tell them that's going to be okay, that Allah has a plan. All you need to do is just have faith, focus on your deen, stay completely focused and things are going to work out okay because I think too many young people especially today we're seeing a lot of young especially young boys and I'm, I'm uh, seeing them especially have a lot of anxiety a lot of mental health issues and what I would just say is that it doesn't it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what you're doing at university it doesn't matter as much as you think it is going to you still have time you still have time to make it so just have faith and don't lose it just before we finish we'll have a quick fire round Okay. Favorite food? Lamb chops. Nice. Yeah. Favorite holiday destination? Favorite holiday destination? Uh, south of Spain. Like uh, um, Granada, Seville. Granada, Seville, Malaga. Yeah. By far. Okay. Um, favorite book? Favorite book? Uh, fiction or nonfiction? Either. Uh, okay. Actually, so one of each. One of each. Uh, fiction is there's a great book called The Analyst of Samarkand 
which I always return to every now and then, by Jonathan Stroud. Um, and Nonfiction Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. It's great, really great read. Um, I'm currently reading Aurangzeb, The Man, The Myth, which is about one of the big Mughal, uh, Mughal emperors who is quite contentious currently in India. He was seen as very hardline Muslim ruler. But it's very interesting what's real and, and what's myth about uh, about him. So really enjoying that. And if you had a superpower, what would it be? If I had a superpower? Well, like uh, a year ago, I decided just all the Spider-Man superpowers, right? Um, but if I really had a superpower, um, probably some combination of like super strength and invulnerability, right? Someone who could just like bear the load for everyone. I thought you were going to say something like automatic budgeting for... <laughs> now that's super boring, man. Like, come on. <laughs> um, favorite day of the week? Jumma. <laughs> I meant to say Monday, but I let you off. Monday, sorry. Yeah, yeah, Mondays. Monday. Uh, Arib, thank you very much for coming on. So, uh, thank you for having me. No pleasure's all mine. And good luck with the Islam Channel Awards. Thank you. Thank you. Assalamu alaikum.